The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. We are Venom, and we are glad to have you join us for this episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. We can smell your delicious brains and know that they hunger for nerdy discussions of the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. We proved ourselves more popular than the spider who betrayed us during this decade, and no one will take that from us. Now, if you'll excuse us, we have innocence to protect with our gaping jaw of razor-sharp teeth and slithering tongue of dark justice. Two men, with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme, and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of... Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and boy, do we have big fun in store for you today on the podcast. But first, let's introduce you to our panel of anti-heroes joining us this time around. First up, I want to eat your brains and wash them down with a cool bottle of Fruitopia. I'm Adam. And permanently bonding with an alien symbiote that boosts sales wherever it guest stars, I'm Michael. And web-swinging his way into the conversation tonight is a fan of the show who has been on board since we announced the premise with Episode Zero, a man after my own heart who dares to sing the praises of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four and Fox's Generation X. He is also the creator of the retro geek series Hot and Nerdy. It's Steven Sapelis! Hello, thank you. Very happy to be here, guys, with the two big cheeses of the Wizard Podcast. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we've been talking a lot to you online, back and forth. People who follow our Twitter feed probably have seen those conversations. But now that we have you here with us, Stephen, give us that origin story. So I, I kind of track this, and I believe this is my earliest memory. It's 1983. I'm two and a half years old. I've got a bowl of Captain Crunch. I'm sitting on my couch in my in my house in Jamaica, Queens, and I'm watching the Incredible Hulk and and the Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends cartoon lineup. Uh, now, as I remember it, it had Stan Lee's intro, which is like how I managed to track down that this is my earliest memory uh, as a two and a half year old. Uh, and then I remember this. I'm also around the same age. I'm at a fashion show <laughs> in my Greek church. It's a fundraiser. I'm one of the models as a two and a half, three year old. And I'm modeling all these super 80s clothes, you know, the vests with the zippers and all that kind of stuff. And at some point they gave me a pair of Superman pajamas to model. And I refused to take them off. I basically had to negotiate with my Yaya to be like, hey, I'm not leaving here without these. So she purchased me those. But then the big thing in my life, which is still my favorite comic book thing ever, was the Adam West Batman series, which I first saw on WPIX in New York, but then they stopped airing it on WPIX. So I would get it on a Boston station that we'd get every Sunday called TV 38, and Unlike even in the 60s when you would watch one part one night and one part the next night, I would have to wait a week between episodes. And I would, you know, 
for an entire week, I was going to school wondering if Robin got eaten by this pit of alligators that the King Tut had set him in. And I was so obsessed that my dad worked six days a week and he had one day off and I had no sense of time as a four year old. So I would wake him up at like the crack of dawn, five in the morning to be like, dad, we got to get ready. And he's like, it's not on for another five hours. Give me a break. <laughs> and it was so bad that he, he eventually taught me how to use the VCR just so he could avoid dealing with me at, you know, five o'clock every Sunday morning. And so, yeah, that was my was my start was that Batman 60 series. It was a real obsession for me. That's awesome. Wow. And so, you know, Michael, Steven, you guys are both New York natives. So it sounds like you're probably catching those things at the same time. When he, when he pulled out WPIX, I was like, that's the channel it was on. I remember. <laughs> and yes, I used to watch it religious every week. And I'd be like, oh, I gotta wait a week for this. And I would, my, I remember my mother taught me how to use the VCR to record it, rewind it, whatever. And that's what I would, had a tape in there perpetually just recording those episodes. <laughs> well, then they, they pulled it off TV 38 and I made Made my mom called the station they replaced it with the three stooges reruns and i was like livid i was five years old so i made my mom call up the station and they said that they lost the contract so it took basically until the 89 movie came out for batman reruns to come back on in the area That's so true. during that time i just wore out all those tapes <laughs> <laughs> so here's the question then so how does it being introduced to batman and the incredible hulk cartoon series spider-man and animated form how does that develop into a love of comic books and getting a comic book in your hand i think like a lot of us my first comic books were the superpowers mini comic books that came with every figure and then i think around second grade i got some sort of Batman collected series because I tried to write a book report on it and my teacher said it wasn't a book, which I was, <laughs> again, I was just like, what are you talking, of course this is a book. It's got words and pick it, it's a book. Um, she did not take to that. Uh, but then the first one I remember getting was Batman number 401. Magpie was on the cover. I remember I saw the name Jason in regards to Robin and I was like, Robin's name is Jason. What's what's going on here? <laughs> and I believe it was like part of a Toys R Us pack. So I must have got it a couple of years after it came out because the number for the Robin death hotline was there where you could either call to save Robin or kill Robin. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to convince my mom, please, mom, let me call. I like I need to save Robin. Let me call. And it was, you know, 50 cents a minute. So she wouldn't let me do it. And then when he was dead, I was convinced I was one of the reasons why Robin had been killed. You couldn't save mom. him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I think I like my peak of comic book collecting was middle school. That's when, you know, the comic boom came to Long Island. We had numerous comic book shops. My big books were the Green Lantern run with Ron Mars and Daryl Banks and the Ralph Macchio run on Fantastic Four. Those were like my two big comic books. Well, yeah, we haven't heard those ones come up yet and, yeah. uh, for many of our guests, so that's great. It's a good, it's a good pull. I like that. Yeah, I've, I've got the poster here in my uh, little home office. I got both uh, Ron Mars and, and Daryl Banks to sign it. So Green Lantern 51, that was like my key issue. So at what point did you go reading and enjoying that way to saying, okay, maybe I'm going to be a bit of a collector? Because I think you could not escape being a comic book fan in the 90s without giving in to the speculation a little bit. I mean, I think it was the death of Superman when, oh, yeah. when they released multiple issues. And, and there was like this gold rush feeling where it's like, I'm going to get the whole series and this is going to be worth thousands of dollars someday. Like a comic book shop had just opened up in my like hometown square, and they were really pitching that. 
and that was like, you know, obviously you guys know that was the era of like the multiple covers and like the sealed poly bags and, and like you were just collecting these things, like speculating that one day they might be worth something. But even then I was more into the reading part of it than I was into the saving part of it. And like I would I would buy like, you know, go to little comic book conventions and buy like 1960s comic books, terribly low grade comic books. And just like those were the ones I saved and like thought to keep you know safe. But most of the comic books, I, I, I collected them, but I also read them. It wasn't about the money aspect of it. It was about the collecting specific storylines that I liked. Love to hear that. Um, so then obviously in the mix in all this, Wizard Magazine comes to the forefront of, of industry reporting, of just getting the hype and the excitement out there. What did Wizard mean to you? There were a couple things. First, it was I was broke. I was you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. I couldn't buy all the comic books I wanted to read. So Wizard gave you an overview of what was going on in the comic book world. And you could kind of figure out what storylines were going on in like Marvel and DC. And then all these other, you know, image was a big one, obviously. And solar man of the atom was a big one that they kept pushing on me. Um, <laughs> and I never fell for, but yeah, like there was that. And then there was also like, I liked the way there was the interaction between the staff of wizard you know, like they were always poking fun at Garib Seamus, which I thought was hilarious. I, I like it felt like when I would go into my comic book shop and I would hear the guys around the counter talking about comic books. And these guys to me sounded like the smartest guys in the world. They knew everything. And I was like this 13 year old listening to these mid like these guys in their mid 20s like, wow, like they, they've got it figured out. They know everything. <laughs> Like they, they know comic books better than anyone. Like these guys should be writing it. And I like that aspect to it. Like it, it felt like you were hanging out with this team of guys who just loved the books as much as you did. I know you're a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker. And I remember in college in particular, we would all go to like the diner and dissect a movie or whatever we would go see. And, and I kind of feel like the core group of, of got, people that worked at Wizard it was probably the same kind of mindset where they were just a bunch of pals got together talking about comics and nerdy stuff and and speculating before Twitter, before YouTube and any kind of social media. This was their form of social media then. Oh, completely. Yeah. Like, you know, and they were busting each other's chops, just like every good New York friend does. I, I, I remember when I was uh, I think I was in must have been seventh grade. I went to the comic book store. We had Heroes World in like Levittown, which was the town right next to mine. And. I heard these group of guys, they had just announced the cast for Batman Forever, and they were giving their casting list for Batman Forever, and they were like, oh, Robin should be a 12-year-old, and, and Tommy Lee Jones shouldn't be playing Two-Face, it should be this actor. And again, I was just like, these guys, like, they know everything. Like, <laughs> these are the guys. I was like, these are the coolest guys in the world. And that's like, w when I read Wizard, there was that kind of, you know, it, it was your companion, it was your, it was your friend. Like, there weren't a lot of kids in my school who liked comic books, so to hear the stories of these adults that love comic books and had a unique take on it and would like the jokes were hilarious. Like it was kind of like a little bit like mad magazine. You would go in for your specific little section. Like I remember as soon as I would get the magazine, I'd flip to the movie section or I'd flip to like the, like the news section or I'd flip to the back and see like the comic book interviews. Like you knew the structure of the magazine well enough that you knew where you were going to open it to as soon as you picked it up. And yeah, for like that period there from like like seventh grade through or like sixth grade through about 10th grade, I, I 
I bought every single issue that came out. I would go to the like the comic book store first day of the month and just go pick it up. Here's the question I have then. So the conversation always seems to eventually run into, and then I got introduced to girls and I stopped reading and I stopped collecting comics. Do you ascribe to that? Was that part of your story? Did you have a down period and pick them back up? It wasn't so much girls. I wasn't that popular at the time. <laughs> it was when I first moved out of like my parents' house after college. I got my first job in television. I was a nighttime transcriber on a reality show. But during the day, I was working at Midtown Comics, which is like like one of the bigger comic book stores yeah. in New York. Adam, uh, and, next time you come to the New York City, I'm going to bring you there. We'll go there. I uh, go please. there all the time. Yeah, and like I was, I loved Midtown Comics. I thought it was the coolest place on earth, and that's exactly why I shouldn't have worked there. <laughs> Were you in Times you, Square? Were you in the Times Square? I was at the Times Square one. You look familiar. That's what I'm curious. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> it was like January 2005. Okay. Very so possible. There. Yeah, and, and like I was there for, for about six weeks, and <laughs> it was a very hellish job. It was a lot of like carrying large boxes of comic books up three flights of stairs in New York. And then I got laid off. And then it, like I went through this phase where I was like, well, I'm not going to read comic books anymore. I got laid off from the biggest comic book store in Manhattan. I'm done. <laughs> so it took me a few years to pick it back up again to get over my business. That is a unique story for sure. And I want you to tell us uh, in the audience a little bit about Hot and Nerdy because you guys got to go search it right now. Hot and Nerdy. It's really good. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So it, it's basically it's on Amazon Prime right now. It's semi-autobiographical. It's about two nerds in the year 2000 on Long Island whose world is kind of upended when they go to a comic book convention and they meet like the first female comic book fan that they've ever seen in their entire lives. We shot it uh, in 2018. We raised the money on Indiegogo. Uh, and we've been doing the festival run with it ever since. So you're shopping it around, hoping it gets picked up, expand. Because I, I, I'm just imagining there's so much to tell. I mean, the first episode here is taking place at like a basement comic book convention. You know, it's that mm -hmm. standard bunch of sweaty nerd guys talking about <laughs> comics, that whole deal. But you just imagine, okay, what comes next? Okay, well, there's the Star Wars prequels episode. There's the conversation about the early days of the Internet. Like there's so many things that you could be exploring of that early, you know, 2000 time frame and all the geekery that was going on yeah that's the plan it's kind of you know the story of a guy who's a complete nerd and as he gets a little bit cooler his main interest gets a little bit cooler so as he gets more mainstream comic books get more mainstream and we actually just you know since we're all in quarantine right now we just did a kind of a skype reading of the next two scripts which i'm going to cut together and post at some point during this uh break so yeah that's that's Did what we've been doing did you ever see a movie that was very, very low release called Fanboys? Yes. The Star Wars? Yeah. It's about yeah. the... So I actually worked for uh, the Weinstein Company who made that film, and I did some of the rough edits on that movie. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, saw, I saw it in theaters. Yeah, there's a couple scenes that I actually cut together and did, you know, the dailies for, cut some rough edits for it. And that's another same kind of genre type of thing of, you know, a buddy, bunch of nerds, you know, talking about their, in their case, Star Wars. But yeah, very, very cool. Um, that's awesome, though. I'm actually also right now, I'm going for my MFA through Full Sail University and I'm writing sitcom web series and it's a lot of fun and I'm really, I'm like four episodes in and I'm really pumped to see if I can write a full eight and just see what I can maybe fund it and shoot a couple episodes next year. Yeah, that, I mean, it's, I love the web series world. That's kind of where I started and 
I just went back to it with this, and I'd love to do more. It's really exciting. And while we're pitching our web series, guys, don't forget to go check out RD's Retro Detention on the Retro Days YouTube channel. A lot of fun over there, a lot of nostalgia. Uh, it's an adventure every week starring, hey, me, written by, hey, me. <laughs> it is pretty funny, Adam. I really do enjoy it. But uh, let's, uh, let's get into this now. Steven, I know you have this issue in your hands. You've dug into it quite a bit over the few weeks leading up to this episode. But I think it's time we open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. All right, so we have a letter here from Dave Kruger in Chicago, Illinois. Dave, you still reading comics? I hope so. But he has a question for Wizard. He says, About two weeks ago, I bought Quasar number 32. I don't normally buy this book, but it was part three of Operation Galactic Storm, and that's why I picked it up. Now, last week, I caught this other book out of the corner of my eye. It is actually Quasar number 32, but it says number one on the cover. When I opened the book to see what was in it, I glanced at the indicia, and it says it's number 32. I looked through the whole stack of Quasar 32s and found a total of four copies with number one on the cover. What gives? Did Marvel make an error? So here's what Wizard had to say to Dave. Dave, about those Quasars. Quasar is a direct market book, meaning it only goes to the comic book shops. Marvel wanted the Galactic Storm issues to go on to the newsstand as well. And since they're the first Quasars to do so, Marvel labeled them number one instead of number 32. It still says 32 on the inside because there's no getting around the fact that it is number 32. I hope that clears things up. I've always heard of Quasar. I've never read a Quasar book. I have tons of Quasar trading cards. But I didn't realize that he was a direct market book, meaning he was only sold in comic shops until he was part of Operation Galactic. Storm. That is fascinating. How about you guys? Are you Quasar readers? Oh, yeah. Avid. All, for, forever. <laughs> yeah. Long boxes filled with all Quasar stuff. Absolutely. I, I always confused them with Valor. No, never. Not once. Yeah, he was one of those guys that I feel like they really, really, really wanted us to love him. But he's one of those characters where, yeah, like, it seemed like he was written for a select group of comic book readers, and it seems like that was the case here as it played out. But also just that idea that a series could be ongoing, and then they're like, okay, well, we're just going to throw it on the newsstands now. It'll be in the middle of the run. Like, I assume they continued, and then did Quasar 2, and so on and so forth beyond that, but that that's just strange. Like, did pe- how did they ever explain that? Maybe in their letter section, for people to catch up if they really, really loved that issue of Quasar and Operation Galactic Storm? But Have you guys ever run into that, like an issue just with, like, a strange numbering in your collecting? Yeah, I've seen that before. It, Marvel does it more often than than DC, I think, where they like suddenly renumber a book, but yet it's a continuing story from where it last picked up from. And you're like, uh, why is this back to number one, even though it's literally the next phase in this story? Or, um, I mean, DC's been doing that when they when they did Rebirth, they brought you know Detective Comics and Action Comics back to their original numbering, but the other ones still fall into line, so the numbers are all out of whack, and and all the Newt 52 stuff is all confusing, so I've seen that a few times where it happens in weird numbering systems. Yeah, it seems like uh, that's one of the things that Wizard was good for also, is there would be those strange publishing uh, decisions, and they understood 
the industry better because most of the guys that were writing Wizard, especially in these early days, had worked in the comic book shop that Garib Seamus's mother owned. So he just kind of brought them along with him so they knew kind of all about the different decisions that the publishers would make. So very interesting. But let's close up the mailbag and jump into the Wave Riders Wayback Machine. May of 1992, and this is a very, very good month for movies, if you ask me. The first movie is the third part of what ultimately becomes a four-part franchise, Lethal Weapon 3, on May 22nd, which is kind of funny because my dad is May 23rd, and I was like, Dad, let's go see Lethal Weapon. I know you like it. It's a great movie. He's like... I can't bring you. You're 10 years old, and it's rated R. (laughs) But I want to go. Funny enough, my first R-rated movie was Die Hard with a Vengeance with my dad. I was like, I got to go. Because I was such a hardcore Die Hard fan. Anyway, this is the one they bring in Rene Russo as Mel Gibson's love interest. Oh, okay. Then I have seen it, now that I think about it. Because I remember them tussling on the living room floor at some point. Like, aren't they, like, showing off scars? Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's not great. It's not. It's, it's not a great lethal weapon. It's not that great. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fine. It's passable, but it's not great. From what I hear, they're trying to get number five off the ground. So. Yeah, I've heard that will be geriatric weapon. At this point. <laughs> so then the next movie is Alien Three. Didn't we discuss aliens like? Last episode? Yeah, well, last episode in the Hollywood Heroes section, they were discussing all the rejected scripts for Alien 3 that was about to come out. And at this point now, when this issue is released, it's finally in theaters. And yeah, we kind of shared our thoughts about Alien 3 at that time. But Steven, where do you fall on the Aliens franchise in general and and this third in the trilogy at that time? I'll, I'll say something sacrilegious. I don't think Aliens is the best one. I think Alien is the best Ooh. one. Uh, big fan of Alien. Uh, Alien 3, I think, is a little underrated. Or at least it was at the time. I feel like now it's kind of got its appreciation. I mean, Charles Dutton with that speech, How Are You Gonna Die on Your Knees or on Your Feet? That's a whole movie right there. <laughs> Check it out for that. Good point. I like it. <laughs> All right. So the next one, this is a, very much a cult classic for a lot of people, especially people of the 90s like us, and Sino Man, at the time when this movie came out, I saw it in the theater with my cousins. I didn't get it, but then like a few years later, I guess later in middle school and high school, I rewatched it. I realized how funny it was and how much I enjoyed it since then, and I still enjoy this movie. I think it's a very funny, silly comedy and I, I enjoy that movie a lot what's your guys thoughts on this movie the debut of Polly shore man we said the juice <laughs> buddy now they promoted it as if it was wayne's world i don't know if you guys were aware of this but wayne's world was a huge hit and some of the marketing yes. they're like you know they they mentioned wayne's world you know in their taglines and stuff i mean it's pretty shameless did they really i didn't realize that. that's yeah. pretty funny 
And so, but, but it's a great film, just like from, you know, a goofy high school, we're looking to be cool. And suddenly we have a friend who's a caveman. So that makes us cool by association. <laughs> like it really is strange. You know, of course, in their reality, he's being presented as an exchange student. But I honestly, like my favorite Polly Shore movie is Son-in-Law, but Encino yeah. Man is a close second. I like Encino Man. And at the time I was really excited for it. The cast, like when you watch it now, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's got Sean Astin, Rose McGowan's in it, Robin Tunney. So it's got like all these people who eventually went on to bigger things. Yeah. And I've been to Encino and it's not that exciting. So unfortunately, (laughs) the the film Encino Man is much more exciting than the city of, of Encino. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it did start that whole, you know, Brendan Fraser as a man out of time series of movies with, you know, Blast from the Past and George of the Jungle. <laughs> you know, he does it. He does it well. He does he it does. really well. My favorite uh, Brendan Fraser movie, those Airheads. Just putting <laughs> oh, that out there. I love that movie. So the the last movie on our list here is movie was hugely popular during this time period. Sister Act with Whoopi Goldberg. I saw this movie in the theaters. My mother took my sister and I and. I love this movie. I thought it was a really fun, cute, good story. And the ensemble to the cast makes the movie even funnier than just Whoopi herself. Nothing you can say can take (laughs) me away from my God. I mean, that is just (laughs) awesome. I watched this movie so much on VHS. I mean, I saw it in theaters, and then my dad loved it, and so we would just throw this on. And I just loved the singing in this movie. Like, I actually recorded it on an audio cassette just from the TV, and I would just listen to it. I was rocking out to the nuns. Yeah, I love Sister Act. Sister Act 2, not so much, but uh, this first one's pretty fantastic. My fifth grade class watched this in class, and we only watched the first half. And we never watched the second half, and I've still never seen the second half. So someday, oh, no. <laughs> someday I'm going to get around to finishing Sister Act. I think it's on Disney Plus. I think oh, it that's is. right. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. I'm, I'm going to finish Sister Act. Oh, it took me a while, but it's time. So now let's dive into some music of May of 1992. And apparently the only album of any kind of note... In May of 1992, and this is, there's only one album that matters, and it is this month's Kiss Revenge on May 19th. Oh, yeah! All right! (laughs) (laughs) An, An album that was apparently advertised in Marvel Comics, and Adam is a huge Kiss fan. I cannot deny it. Man, not at this time. So in 92, you know, I'm 10 years old. I've never seen a Kiss album. I've never heard a Kiss song. (laughs) But as I've gone back and looked at Marvel Comics and I see the ad for Revenge in the back, I'm just like, what? It's like a full page, like, you know, back cover, full color, nice glossy thing. And for Kiss fans, the album where Kiss became cool again because they (laughs) took off their makeup in 1983 and all through the 80s they're just chasing bon jovi and van halen they're all glammed out they're wearing neon spandex and whatever and they were just they were they did not look good let's just put it that way (laughs) they should have kept the makeup on and the number of songs from the 80s that were good is a one album's worth yet they released an album almost every year of the 80s you know so um, it's rough it's rough but this album is just like hardcore heavy naughty rock and roll i mean they got songs like unholy take it off paralyzed i just wanna you know like that i just want a song where well, they would sing it live they were at you know on the album they don't curse but it's like and in the music video it's i just wanna f-u-h 
would pop on the screen. I just want to fuck. I just want to. I just want to forget you. You know, like that's <laughs> that's the joke of the song. So they were just trying to be like outrageous and get uh, people to listen to them. Unfortunately, this was the down period still for Kiss, and grunge had just hit with Nirvana and everything else, and so they were like, "No, this doesn't work." Sorry, you just missed the boat. Skid Row was like the last one that got to make it out alive, but. I mean, like I said, I hadn't heard Kiss. I became a Kiss fan in high school. But most people have heard this song from this album, which was God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Do you guys know what movie that was featured in the year prior? I do. All right, Steven, lay it on us. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey? Ding, ding. <laughs> saw that in theaters. I definitely saw that in theaters. I saw that in theaters, too. So at the very end, when Bill and Ted go to the future to actually learn to play their instruments, and they come back, they come back and they're playing God Gave Rock and Roll to You, and that's the song that plays over the credits with all the fake magazine covers. That's the <laughs> song that unites the world. I had no idea that was a Kiss song. I know. Most people didn't. That's the thing. Yeah. So now you know. You've been educated, and I'll stop talking about kiss now because uh, i could go on all night <laughs> we're gonna have a kiss podcast before we know it <laughs> well anyway let's close up the wave riders way back machine and move on to our table of contents adam what do you got for us all right so just by way of wizard history what was going on at this moment wizard issue 100 as well as issue 50 in fact are great sources of the timeline and the wizard world and as you look at may of 1992 this is what they had to say about issue number nine looks like wizard will be going out of business folks Sales are horrible, morale is down, and Garib's mom yells at us if we eat non-kosher food in the house. Yes, really. Adios. So they were not doing well. Those first eight issues did not sell well. Even though we see like the letters section growing a little bit, people saying, I, I can't find issue number one. I, I really like your magazine. It's great. Like apparently it just wasn't enough to keep the doors open. These things turn around with issue number 10 next month, thanks to a man named Rob Liefeld. But we will tell that story when it comes. But just so you know, like this is a big deal. You have Venom on the cover. He's one of the biggest characters in Marvel Comics right now. But they thought this was going to be it. So the Venom cover is signed uh, by an artist named Whitman, but not actually an artist with the last name of Whitman. It is Bart Sears, who gave us previous covers. In fact, the uh, Flash cover that we got for issue seven, he would do it under the name Whitman for some reason. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's very weird. But there's also in here, there is another guy on staff who's like the official editor, you know, by name, which is Patrick O'Neill. And he has a little editorial that he adds here, a letter from our editor, The Golden Age of Comics. And his whole point in this is that he feels that comic books of the 90s have no starting point for younger readers. Basically saying like, how are you going to raise up a new generation that keeps buying your books? If you have nothing that their parents are willing to buy them, stating that even uh, Disney was not willing to keep publishing books for some reason. It, he, this is what he says here. And when kids do find comics, what's in them? Do any of Wizards readers really think Lobo or Punisher or most of Wolverine's adventures are suitable reading for preteens? I have a six-year-old son, and I'm sure a shoot not going to hand up those characters to read. Marvel made an abortive attempt to launch a kid's line a few years back. The last remaining title on that line, ALF, was canceled 
world a few months back. <laughs> DC's impact line was touted as being aimed at the new reader. Many of those titles might well work if the new readers could find them. So it's just a situation where he's saying, like, everything is so dark and gritty and extreme that what you're handing to a kid these days off the rack or trying to get him in with all the continuity and everything else is just not going to cause that generation to rise up and keep reading. Uh, what do you guys think about that theory? Well, it has a little bit of weight to it because not long after this, they break Batman's back, they kill off Superman, they do all these things that essentially created a jumping on point for a lot of people. And it's like, oh, Batman's going to, there's going to be a different Batman. I got to read these stories. Superman's going to die. What's going to happen? And I think the industry was realizing, hey, we need something that will get people to jump on and and pick up reading. I mean, his his thought that it's not going to work, like you said, they found a way to make it work. And you're still going to the comic shop every week. A lot of our listeners are still doing that on a regular basis. I think it ended up being just fine. His concern, maybe his six-year-old didn't have anything to read. But a few years later, he would have found enough. What do you think, Steven? I think around this time, I remember DC did reboot uh many of their heroes which for me as like a seventh grader was really exciting like i liked getting in on the ground floor of some of these new heroes which is why i think i like kyle rayner so much you know like when you're in middle school you're figuring out your own weird powers and it's kind of cool to see it like a new hero figuring out those weird new powers every day as well so um i i do think there's something to that i think it's why kids like spider-man and some of these heroes were just so established that it was hard to, like, find an inroad on on Superman. So, yeah, so I can see the point in that. The other thing I, I remember from this is that for my 11th birthday, I bought a bunch of Impact comics and gave them out as goodie bags. <laughs> so at the Human Fly and who else was the in comet, there? Uh, the Comet was a big one. And no no one was, was excited. Except <laughs> me. Like, what is this? Yeah, they were like, who the hell are these people? But... When you talk about what was getting the kids excited and in the comic book stores, this next article here is a massive 12-page interview with six of the seven Image Comics founders. So Will Spartacio, as we discussed last episode, actually still kind of hadn't made up his mind. They talk about him being on board, but he was not, like, appearing first thing uh, out of the gate as they make their debut. And so what they're saying here is Wizard went over to Mark Sylvester house in Malibu, California, where everybody was hanging out, all the image guys and then their guys from oddly enough, Malibu Comics, who are handle all their publishing and things for them. And so this interview just, it's basically just like everybody taking their turn. They're pitching their new comics. They're like, oh yeah, this is what we're going to do. This is my team. It was kind of close to this guy's team, so I had to change this. But Steven, I know you read through this article maybe a couple times. What were your big takeaways? It's almost like like a Greek tragedy where you can see the, <laughs> the flaws like before they happen, where, where you're like, oh, God, they're never going to make their deadlines on these books. And they're talking about that in the interview. Like, yeah, well, we got to hit the deadlines. Otherwise, people are going to start to lose interest. And we know that. And then it does feel like like they haven't really figured it out yet. They're pitching all these ideas, and then people will say, well, well, that's my idea. Like, I have a, I have a fast guy. Well, my guy's faster than your fast guy. So it's like you guys couldn't have got together before the interview and figured out who had the fast guy? <laughs> <laughs> who had this guy? 
Um, well, and, and it is funny, yeah, because it's like even Eric Larson, I know he said in the past that he created the Savage Dragon character, the dragon, like yes. when he was young, but he doesn't have anything worked out here because when they get to him, Mark Silvestri asks, so what does the dragon do? Does he do any dragon stuff? Larson, no, he doesn't do any dragon stuff. Lee, flames and stuff? Larson, he very well might because I've been talking to these guys and they think it'd be a cool visual, even though I don't know that he should be doing such a thing, Silvestri. All those who think he should breathe fire Fire, say I, everyone, I, <laughs> Larson, he'll be breathing fire in issue number one. <laughs> the dragon works for the Chicago Police Department. He's a one-man SWAT team. If some bad guy like any of Mark's characters rip it up the place, Sylvestri, or you mean badly drawn guy, what does he eat? He eats coal, Larson. <laughs> laughing. He's just a regular guy with green skin. Okay, he's a regular guy who's five foot ten, weighing 450 pounds, breathes fire, and has green skin. Perfectly regular. Sylvestri, what's that thing on his head? Larson, I have no idea. Does he have any special powers? wizard asks he's strong as all hell Sylvester does he fly Larson he does not fly anyway so these guys are all over the place yeah they didn't quite have it all worked out some of it's tongue in cheek but really like they are just like yeah it's probably gonna be this and that and it seemed like they literally have ideas but now we just gotta sort it out before we actually put them on the shelves except that Liefeld really didn't you know he's just like here's young blood here's a bunch of character designs well and then so so McFarlane at some point says that Spawn comes back it's five years later and he's a white man when he was a black man yeah. That did that didn't happen, right? Well, see, here's the weird thing. If you look at those early issues, they show him in shadow. He doesn't quite have the same profile that Al Simmons has, you know, when they do flashbacks and stuff in the comics. So it sounds like he had that idea and then by the time he actually decided to, you know, have him back, he just said, "Ah, whatever." Cuz that's the weird thing too. I mean, he has hamburger face. So what yes. does it mean he came back as a white man? Where, where, when does he ever walk around without you know his shredded up face? So yeah, it, it, it was a weird little note in there. And then obviously uh, Rob Liefeld pitching the Youngblood movie. Yeah, <laughs> in, in one year from the date of the first publish, thing, right out the gate. Yeah, or like two years. Like where do you see yourself in two years? Oh, the Youngblood movie's coming out. And then this is what I find real interesting because then McFarland says everybody here has six to ten characters as backups. I could give you a list of ten characters if spawn doesn't work then i would be foolish to continue it so what some of the guys are doing is that they put out wildcats for three issues and if it doesn't quite go there are another 10 characters he could draw from so why not try another one and then when one hits then maybe come out with the monthly one of that one that's why because we, we talked about this I believe when we had uh, william bruce west on when we were saying that yeah these initial young blood and everything they were coming out in three issue mini series just to test the waters to see if people liked them and liefeld unfortunately just could not control himself he's just like every book every book okay now here's one called troll now here's one over <laughs> here now here's one over there here's and some of them hit i mean i know a lot of people liked profit and stuff but otherwise sure. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not what we needed. Like Steven said, this is a piece of evidence, basically. <laughs> These guys shooting themselves <laughs> in the foot ahead of time. But the other upstart in the in the conversation was Valiant. Like we said, Wizard was trying to get Steven to buy Solar Man of the Atom. <laughs> Try as they might. So we also had a conversation in issue seven about Jim Shooter. They had a whole, you know, massive article with him. These are the other guys involved in Valiant comics. So like behind the scenes guys 
guys that you probably have not heard of that weren't necessarily creators. You have a Steve Mazarski, Seymour Miles, and John Hartz for Voyager Communications, Inc. And basically, their main conversation is about their big Unity crossover. So this is like getting all their characters together. Unity Zero is going to be a free comic book in limited quantities. What we're doing is we're apportioning allotments to retailers. Actually, the way it works is that for every set of Unity books of all eight issues that a retailer orders, he'll receive two free copies of Unity Number Zero. Hopefully, he'll be able to give a free Unity Number Zero to every Valiant fan he has currently, as well as some extra copies to give out to people who have never before read a Valiant comic. But I do urge all Valiant fans and anybody who would be interested in obtaining the free copy of Unity Zero to reserve their copy in their local comic store, as well as all eight issues of Unity in May and all eight issues in June. So they're a marketing machine, and that, and that is what they're talking about nonstop here, and to the point of, they basically say, we're not an independent publisher because we are fully backed by investors. We got a lot of money, so we're right up there with Marvel and DC because we got the cash, baby. So I'm curious, Stephen, we've sampled some Valiant books of late, and I know Michael preferred Harbinger to Exo Manowar, but what about you and Valiant? Didn't get in on Solar. Anything else? Well, I did have, thinking about it, I did have one Solar issue. It was like the completely black cover. It might have been number one, and I just never took it out of the bag. So I never read it. I just had it, and I don't know how I got it. But that was my one journey into Valiant. So all you just remember hearing about him over and over again of be beaten over the head with the Valiant mallet. Yeah, and the first issue of Wizard I, I did buy was a Solar cover. So I remember thinking, oh, I guess this guy's like the next big thing. And, and reading about him, I had zero interest in him, so... Well, and the last thing I'll mention here is, so one of the big creative forces at Valiant, along with Jim Shooter, was Bob Layton. And Bob Layton had had a big run with Iron Man at Marvel. And he was like everybody's favorite Iron Man artist and all this stuff. And so Wizard just out and out asks, they're like, hey, is there any chance that Bob Layton's going to draw Iron Man again? And they're like promoting Valiant book. <laughs> and they're like, ah, uh, no, he's pretty committed to what he's doing here. So there's no chance he'll be drawing Iron Man again. So I just thought that was hilarious. They're like, yeah, everything you said, but how about Iron Man? (laughs) (laughs) Who eventually does team up. There is a a Marvel Valiant crossover in the last days of Valiant's first run after they are bought by Acclaim Comics. You have Exo Manowar and Iron Man in heavy metal. It was a video game. Yeah, if anybody wants to look that one up. They seem out of touch because at one point in the the article, they, they brag about the fact that they have Dickie Betts from the Almond Brothers making a cameo in one of the books. (laughs) Which is an 11-year-old. I was like, the almond what? Like, what are they talking about? Well, and eventually Aerosmith guest stars in Shadow Man. So they were really big on that. They're like, people know Aerosmith at least. (laughs) Um, Next up is an interview with Neil Gaiman. I feel like he's one of those guys that just seems like a real cool dude to talk to. I think a lot of people might assume his books are pretentious. (laughs) He doesn't seem to be up his own butt, so I like him. He's just having a good time creating, and people seem to like what he does. So he finds that people are responding more to just the characterizations in the stories than they are being tied to some massive plot, even though there is continuity within you know, 
through story arcs, but he's just like, yeah, I just, I write people weird and people accept that, yeah, there's weird people in the world. I know somebody like that. And there's also the discussion of whether or not Sandman is a superhero in the DC universe sense. So I'm curious for what you guys know of Sandman. Steven, have you, have you read much of Gaiman's work on Sandman? I read a couple of those. I, I never thought of him as a DC superhero. I couldn't picture him hanging out with Superboy or Damage or anyone from that era. He just It just seemed like its own weird offshoot to me. I agree. I, I mean, I read maybe two issues of Sandman ever. Um, I, I just can't see it in the greater DC universe as being something that would even fit, even like in an Elseworlds kind of a thing. The only way I could even connect it, if, if possible, would maybe be like... You know, like a Dr. Fate has the Fate Tower, and maybe he, like, connects the different Earths or different universes. That'd be kind of cool, but I, don't, I can't see them in, like, the main continuity ever. Yeah, for some reason, I always equated Preacher and Hellblazer and Sandman. I put them in the same camp, and I was just like, you know, you had John Constantine show up in the more superhero-ish type comics, and so he was kind of accepted. But yeah, Sandman never really did, although Gaiman mentions that he wrote a story where he put the Bizarro Superman universe into a story, and the DC's like, no, you can't do that. You're not in our main continuity. So he had to change the names, but it was basically like they still looked like Bizarro, that was for the fans but referring to the discussion of being a superhero on the other hand Gaiman agrees that there are superheroish elements in Sandman there's definitely a level on which Sandman is my creating a superhero I'd be happy writing one of the things I'd like best about Sandman is all the wonderful powers he has and they really have nothing to do with anything they don't get used much because he doesn't go around doing things heroically somebody told me recently that Marvel was pleased because they announced that Sleepwalker was Sandman done right which I thought was terribly funny and very sweet (laughs) They have a dream character who goes around battling things and meeting Spider-Man. Mine never battles anything, and I doubt he'll ever meet (laughs) Spider-Man. Sleepwalker is Sandman done right. (laughs) I don't think time has been in Marvel's favor on that. Agreed. All right, but let's talk a little bit about some of the fans' opinions about who deserves to be on the cover of Wizard, because they've renamed it the Amazing Art Section, the Showcase of Future Comic Book Illustrators of America, which all came out of their Design Your Own Cover contest from issue four. And each issue we've been going into this and looking at some of the artwork here. Do you guys have a favorite among these pieces? Well, the, really, the only one of note is the Psylocke one that's, that's in black and white and, and the penciling. You love those black and white I pictures. Love, you love that I rogue. Love you just love the sketch look, huh? I, I love that look. It harkens back to my love for Unbreakable and how, you know, Samuel L. Jackson's character is talking about, like, before it gets chewed up in the commercial machine and they colorize it and everything, and he talks about this whole thing and... That's why I like it. It's a real nerdy comic book movie reference. How about you, Steven? Is there one that jumped out at you? You know, I agree that Psylocke one's pretty fantastic. Psylocke was always my favorite female X-Men, so... There is a gigantic Venom cover, which looks like it could have just been the cover of this issue. Like, if Mm -hmm. Mark Sears wasn't available, just use what this Brian White gave you, because that's pretty fantastic. But there's some obscure indie characters in here, which I find hilarious, like the Badger. Anybody remember the Badger? He was created by Mike Barron, who did Nexus. He was almost a dead 
Deadpool-type character himself. He's like a Vietnam vet who's a little bit nuts. So he just goes around getting in fights with people. There's another mask where he's got a gun pointed at the reader. (laughs) And Lobo is even rubbing the wizard cloak on his crotch. (laughs) But my favorite is the Tick cover. You love the Tick. (laughs) Yes, well, I mean, the animated series wasn't out yet. I didn't know who the Tick was at this time. But this cover is so creative because the, the Tick has a magic wand and he's changing a bunch of characters into frogs you know so we know thor got turned into a frog once but there's a donatello frog there's a ghost rider frog there's a superman frog a hulk frog and then a spider-man frog who's web swinging away and i just i love the concept of that it cracks me up that is very clever i didn't i didn't realize all those details yeah, I didn't notice the details either. I just saw the tick, and I was like, ah, I'm moving on. <laughs> <laughs> of note also in this issue, this is the premiere of the top 10 hottest artists section. Uh, just so you're aware, that does not have to do with looks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not the most attractive artist section. Uh, but this is, I think, a big deal because prior to this, when were you ever going to get a picture of the artist who was drawing your favorite comic? You didn't know what they looked like. So, not surprisingly, the top four are definitely members of the image group. You got Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, and Rob Liefeld, Will Sportacio. Then you got Ron Lim mixing it up in the middle. It's big for Silver Surfer and Infinity War. Eric Larson at number six. John Byrne, Art Adams, Mike Zeck, and Sam Keith. The original top ten right there for you. Yeah. Do you guys have a favorite of that bunch that you would say, okay, of those names, here's the one I respect the most? Jim Lee has always been a, a big, big favorite of mine. But McFarlane, if I look at it now, he's branched out so uniquely with all of his action figure lines and all of his other industry things that he does. I, I'm going to go with Jim Lee, though. Steven? You know, Jim Lee was, I mean, just who we all talked about. I mean, that was the guy when we were kids who everybody wanted to be. So it's hard not to choose Jim Lee, but I could put in a, a pitch for Ron Lim. I loved his work on Silver Surfer. So okay. Jim Lee, or, Jim Lee or, or Ron Lim. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I mean, I would agree with you guys on Jim Lee just for the fact that he has only gotten better and his work has never dipped in quality. I mean, he's just one of those creators where you're just like, wow, how has he done it? And he's done it sparingly. And so now I have to say that I would say overall, for me, it's John Byrne, just because of the number of books that he's written, created, worked on that I own far surpasses anything by Jim Lee. So I'd have to go with John Byrne just because I love his creativity and I love his ideas for just kind of taking things in new directions. So he definitely gets my vote there. Next up also there is an ad here for a line of Marvel UK comics. So apparently there was this comic that came out called Death's Head and then Death's Head 2 and that was very popular. The the original Death's Head was actually a spinoff. He was a bounty hunter in Transformers comics that Marvel Marvel produced and then suddenly like that became a big deal so now Marvel got super excited Marvel's British sub-universe is go and so they said it started with Death's Head 2 and continues with four new comics so you have one called Warheads Motormouth Hell's Angel and Knights of Pendragon have you heard of any of those titles gentlemen oh yeah I got them on my wall right here (laughs) (laughs) 
these were supposed to be like in the style of you know stuff like Tank Girl ah. and just like you know the 2000 AD line of British comics, Judge Dredd, just kind of a little grittier, lots of demons and lots of people in leather. Knights of Pendragon was not. Knights of Pendragon was kind of a weird King Arthur kind of riff. But the only way I know about these comics is that I used to go to the store. I've talked about it before. Bookman's racks and racks of comics, and I would go through there and I would see so many issues of Knights of Pendragon or you know like a motor mouth like and I was just like these Marvel UK comics that nobody bought although I will mention that Death's Head 2 I was looking through that series and at one point Death's Head 2 battles the Avengers of 2020 as well as Iron Man 2020 so if you're in that mode right now these days guys you want to buy all those comics set in our year 2020 death's head 2 is part of that conversation just don't be confused because they just released a iron man 2020 that came that started running this year so that oh, really? might be yeah it's new stories but they call in the book iron man 2020 oh okay also in the wizard news section they mentioned that dark horse is publishing robocop versus terminator and aliens versus predator and that really dark horse bread and butter licensed comics but they just seem to do it right have you guys ever read any of those robocop versus terminator aliens versus predator aliens versus batman come on michael i've seen aliens versus batman i've seen a few of those versus things but i can't remember them i don't know if i ever like said oh my goodness i have to buy this i didn't read alien versus predator or any of the you know the robocop versus whoever I didn't even know it exists because I was just oblivious to it and I didn't know any better. Steven, did you ever catch up with any of these Dark Horse titles? I did. Mostly uh, I would borrow them from friends. I always found it was the friends that like Nirvana, wore flannel, and had like you know, <laughs> combat boots. They were really into the Alien and Predator books and, and Terminator. So anytime that there was some weird crossover, they would read it and then they would speculate that there was going to be a movie made of this any minute. <laughs> it was just around the corner. Well, what was cool is we at least got video games based on these comics, because there was a Robocop versus Terminator video game, there was mm-hmm. Aliens versus Predator, so, I mean, at the very least, we got some sort of realization of those comics, but I, I always just thought it was cool, because I believe Frank Miller was the one involved in the, the Robocop versus Terminator, so I think Walt Simonson drew it, but Frank Miller wrote it. Because he also, for those who don't know, Frank Miller very involved in the Robocop franchise for 2 and 3, although he was very mm-hmm. upset what happened to his script for Robocop 3, that it became PG-13, but very different, yeah. So, also, just of note, this is one of those things that I remember just learning as Marvel Comics trivia, but Alpha Flight 106 had just come out recently and the big thing about that was that North Star revealed that he was gay in that issue and in this time period that was still a very taboo thing so for a character to come out I mean they mentioned that John Byrne who created Alpha Flight his initial concept was even to have North Star die of AIDS initially like he wanted to be that forthcoming and like let's talk about what's in the news and Marvel said no but then this issue hit and they said yeah we're doing it and it got a bunch of media attention it just became a very big deal at the time huh that was that was a big thing i mean there were so many shows or made for tv movies that revolved around that because it was such a even though being gay wasn't something that was new to the world it was just like the, the idea of hiv and aids that was such a big buzzword back then 
I could see why they would have tried to do it, but then I could see why Marvel would have shied away from trying to do it as well. A, a source of controversy for sure, but I think it it ultimately worked in their favor because my understanding is that issue was very well received as a result. So people were just like, oh, wow, okay, there's representation now in comics. Now, also in Wizard News, the biggest piece of this for me is that it mentions here, Marvel gears up for a line of future comics. New line begins this fall. And so basically what they're talking about is the 2093 line will not be based on any future previously seen in the Marvel Universe and will stand on its own. To be released this fall, this new series will start with four titles. Spider-Man 2093, Doom 2093, Ravage 2093, and Punisher 2093. As we know, those were revamped. The whole line was called 2099, gave them seven more years of development. But the big thing on this is the look of the characters, because they're releasing concept sketches. And I have to know, was this in an issue of Marvel Age? Like, I need to find these in a larger size. But tell me what you guys think of these designs. Well, I'll start with the Spider-Man one. I mean, it does have elements of the Spider-Man 99 look to it, but it also has kind of a like a Venom Carnage kind of look to it as well, which I find kind of interesting. But he has bad ears. <laughs> What's yeah, going on there? <laughs> I mean, what's ridiculous to me is Ravage 2093 here looks like Cyclops. Like, 100%. He's just Cyclops. Yes, and Doom looks like Moon Knight. Yes. Yes, he does leave Moon Knight. You're right. I mean, the only one I wish they would have kept the design of is Punisher, because he looks awesome. The Punisher design they went with literally just looks like Frank Castle with big shoulder pads. Yeah. But this guy's got, like, this helmet on, he's got gun hands, he's got guns attached to his wrists, and a bazooka on the back of him, and he's, I mean, he's just, he's got a futuristic look to him in a major way. So yeah, if they could have stuck with that, I think it would have felt like more of a redesign, I guess. It would have felt like something new instead of, oh, it's just the same character of the future whatever <laughs> the, the helmet is very different very strange yeah it kind of looks like uh i think the character then wasn't there an eric the red x-men um, yeah he came yeah, like a shiar guy or something he looks like that laser tag show that used to be on in the 80s photon <laughs> he looked like photon characters uh, I'm surprised, Michael, you should have brought that up when you guys were uh, making fun of Exo Manowar, because I guess his helmet's more of a photon look, too. It is a photon look. Do you, do you remember those toys, though? The the um, the red helmet with the attachment to the laser gun? Oh, yeah, I had it, man. Mm-hmm. I had some photon. Oh, wow, you were lucky. <laughs> my, my cousin had them, and I used to go over to their house because they had two... Bigfoot power wheels and those things. We used to just ride on the power wheels and shoot each other with those. Oh, it was the best. (laughs) That was a good Saturday afternoon. That is. Man, loving it. The last thing I'll mention here in the table of contents is that there is also another new feature called the Wizard's Crystal Ball, which I don't remember continuing on, but this is also like is sponsored by Valiant because this is all about unity. It's all about Valiant. But the main thing that they mention 
is that they say the books are extremely enjoyable and are also very collectible. A lot of the back issues are extremely hard to find and now command premium prices. The vast majority of Valiant books printed to date have had print runs of under 50,000 copies. None have had a print run over 80,000 copies. This compares to over half a million copies of the average issue of X-Men. Think about this. There are 100 times as many copies of X-Men 1 as there are copies of Magnus number 1 or Exomanowar number 1. For every copy of Harbinger number 1 printed, there were 200 copies of X-Men printed. If and when these books really catch on, they'll be very hard to find. Well, not so hard to find in the 50 cent bins, but <laughs> yeah, Valiant, they had a moment where Wizard really wanted us to believe they were valuable. Yeah, and in future top 10 lists, you're going to be surprised. Right now, everything's X-Men. Pretty soon, we're going to start seeing Valiant pop in there. But that's all we got for the table of contents, and now it's time for... Heroes in Motion. And this issue has rumors of a fifth Superman film based on John Byrne's Man of Steel run. I wish it was real. I wish that could have happened. It would have been really cool because I I always felt bad that Christopher Reeve's Superman run ends with the quest for peace. What's your guys' thoughts on that? I mean, I think it would have been awesome. At the time, I loved Quest for Peace. I remember being on summer vacation in, uh, in, in Sacramento, California, and from a distance off the highway, we could see the billboard for Superman for the Quest for Peace. And so I said, Mom, can we go see Superman for the Quest for Peace? And she said, no, and we just kept going. <laughs> uh, and eventually I rented it, and I thought it was, you know, the coolest movie ever. Like, I thought Nuclear Man was a, a great villain. I was wrong, but I was, you know, seven, so... I can be forgiven. That's pretty great. I feel like, ultimately, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, was John Byrne's Man of Steel to the extent that it was making Superman more relatable and making him more lovable. I mean, that show was a hit. People loved Dean Cain, and I think that that was what... John Byrne was attempting to do is to make Superman a character, not a this god, you know, up in the sky. And so I, I think they eventually got that. Um, if we could have gotten, you know, one more Christopher Reeve Superman, I think that would have been fantastic. Maybe in the wake of Batman 89, they could have done it right and they could have gotten more funding than canon had for quest for peace <laughs> and then yeah we could have had a real good film and we all know or maybe you don't know but for those who are not familiar with the tim burton nicholas cage starring superman a film all the plans for that that was not what we wanted so we should be thankful that didn't happen but <laughs> but don't you wish you could see it now if, if you were oh, the really documentary do. about it oh yeah. just to yeah. see what that movie could have been oh it would have yeah. been really interesting But let's talk about what Tim Burton did get to produce and what we were (laughs) being led to get excited for. There's an article that says, Who's Who in Batman Returns? And as you guys know, I'm a huge Batman fan. And I particularly, I really do love Batman Returns, even though people don't like it. I mean, Adam, you go. What What do you think about this article? 
Well, th- this is an article that for me, it kind of, in retrospect, you know, you've seen the movie. And so you look at the article like, well, they got most of it right. It sounded like, you know, all the, the preliminary stuff in here was crazy in terms of Marlon Wayans. Now, we talked about him being cast as Robin and not appearing in the film in a previous episode. But let me just read what it mentions here, okay? First of all, they have a typo that calls him Marion Wayans. Um, <laughs> it says... This is a sticky one. The younger brother to Keenan Ivory, Damon, Kim, and Sean Wayans of In Living Color fame originally had a, quote, small role in an unnamed part as the kid. When publicity got out that the black teenager was slated for the role of Robin, publicists went nutso. They have repeatedly told me that Robin was never in the film and that there are no orphans, reportedly the kid is one, no kids in costumes, no teen sidekicks to Batman. They've claimed that Marlon Wayans' small role was never given a name other than the kid. They've since claimed that his part has been dropped from the film entirely. Several things point out that the publicists may be lying through their teeth. Marlon Wayans is still listed in the cast in all the major Hollywood trade papers three months after he was supposedly dropped. No official studio press release has been sent listing his deletion from the cast. Plus, according to insiders, his role in the film was not insubstantial and it would take major rewriting of the last third of the film to lose his input. Sources reveal that the kid is a grease monkey whiz kid mechanic who helps Batman fix the Batmobile and saves his life. He later helps Batman save Gotham from killer penguins. Even more astounding, people in the know have revealed that the kid's uniform has an R in a circle on it, and he tells Batman he likes to be called, can you guess, Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, like, it was fully developed, it was fully fleshed out, it was all in there. In these days, we've heard, you know, more about that, but basically, yeah, I mean, they claim in here that the studio had an issue with having a black Robin and they thought that was getting bad press for them, which is very problematic. Oh, it would never fly today. No. Tim Burton, as I understand it, just basically said, no, it was just, we rewrote the script. I brought in this guy who wrote Heathers. We had a very different take and a very different focus. And yes, we had him in the film, but we just ultimately didn't have space for him. We already had two villains and everything else going on so uh, but i know steven you read through this article you're a big batman fan yes tell us about what your thoughts were as you were picking things out of this article well so you know going back to me being a big fan of the adam west batman when the 89 batman movie came out and like i saw that first trailer like i thought my mind was going to pop out of my own head like i was so excited i couldn't believe it and then I remember racing home from school to tape an episode of A Current Affair, which had like a whole like hit piece on the Batman of, yeah. movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And they were talking about how Robin's not in it. And I was like, what? Robin's not in it? I'm like, what? what's the point of Batman without Robin? And they had like this whole thing where Adam West talked about how he cried that he didn't get the role. And so then I started to feel like this real allegiance to the 60s Batman show. And I refused to see the 1989 Batman to the Whoa. point where my parents had to drag me to the movie theater to go see it. And I did see it. And then I eventually, like, I warmed to it. And now I love it. When this came out, I was so pumped thinking there's going to be Robin in this movie. And there had been press, like, saying that Robin was going to be in the movie. It was an action figure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, like, what I was most excited about. And I, I saw the trailer. I thought it looked cool. I thought Penguin looked cool, Catwoman. I was just w- sitting there waiting in the theater for two hours as I watched the movie, I'm like, there's going to be some hint. Like they've been saying there's going to be a hint uh, about Robin. And then there never was. So that was a bummer, but 
I still like the movie, parts of it. I feel like the first 30 minutes are great, and then it kind of just gets into this weird place where the penguin's running for mayor, and it... But that's based on a Batman 66 episode. Yes, yes his honor the penguin, dishonor the penguin. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange movie. It's a very strange movie, because, like, the, the through line from Sewer Dweller to Mayor is very... They really they get that real fast. But it's where Batman 89 is... It's a Tim Burton film, but it's it's not really a Tim Burton-style film, where they were like, okay, Tim, here, take the second Batman, make it whatever you want. And he made his Edward Scissorhands version of Batman in, in Returns, which... If you can appreciate that, you'll you'll like the movie. There are elements of the movie that I wish would would you know have hit the cutting room floor, so to speak. But um, overall, I do enjoy the movie a lot. I was so bummed when we get to Batman Forever and Michael Keaton is gone, Tim Burton is gone, and we don't see the payoff of what happens to Catwoman after the end of that Batman Returns. I was like, I wanted to see where that was going to go, and it just I'll never ever know, and that bums me out. And there's also a, like a mention that the Riddler is mentioned in, in the movie. Nope. Yeah, <laughs> which, which like at the time, like you know, my dad's not really a movie guy, and I remember he came like he's like, oh, I was reading in the paper that uh, Pee Wee Herman's playing the Riddler's father in Batman. I was like, what? Pee Wee's playing the Riddler's father? So I don't know if he got his wires crossed there. If, if there was at some point a rumor that. Riddler was going to be in it, and that Paul Rubens was playing Penguin's father, but it was it was out there in in, in the world. Yeah, because I mean, we read about the rejected script by Sam Hamm, but there was no mention of the Riddler in that one at all. So yeah, that's a weird thing to have developed. And of course, we know eventually there was all the drama with you know is Robin Williams going to play the Riddler and so on and so forth. So Batman Returns, I just feel like it's so weird. It's so fun on its own. Is it a great Batman movie? No, but it's it's a very fun Tim Burton movie. It's one of the ones that works. I feel like just for its sheer oddness. Speaking of another character in black, now it's time to give the devil his due. That's right, our cover model Venom. We're gonna start talking about this character who really has had a legacy that started even before this issue building and building so we're gonna get into our venom character discussion actually going to hand it off to our guests with a little bit of backstory. So Venom's origins began with Spider-Man's black costume. Spider-Man's black costume originally appeared at the end of Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars issue number eight in 1984, being delivered to him by a machine that reproduced costume pieces for other heroes that had been damaged in battle. Spider-Man found he now had unlimited webbing that shot from the tops of his hands, and the costume would respond to his thoughts to retreat from his body. Peter wonders in the the next issue of the series if his thoughts were influenced to create the black costume by seeing the new Spider-Woman, who has a similarly styled black and white costume. Returning to Earth in The Amazing Spider-Man number 252, Spider-Man found out the costume could even transform itself into any type of clothing he could think of, so he never had to remove it. The idea for the costume was submitted by a fan named Randy Schuler, who drew up what he called a cell suit, for Peter Parker. Then Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter bought the costume idea for 220 bucks 
giving Schuler a chance to write the story. Not long after its announcement, fan backlash created resistance to Spidey's new look, but eventually, Marvel readers took to the new garb after all. So... What do you guys think about the black costume compared to the red and blue one? My friend Bob Winters, who's like the biggest Spider-Man fan I know, has always said that Venom is uh, like Spider-Man for kids who thought Spider-Man was too wimpy. And to me, I always thought the black costume on Spider-Man was was pretty neat. I remember my friend who also liked comic books, he had that Secret Wars Spider-Man figure, which was probably my introduction to it. And I it looked great. I thought it was really cool. I feel like in the 80s, we were kind of primed for slime with uh, Ghostbusters and with You Can't Do That on Television. And then I love that show. And, yeah. And then the evil horde slime pit. So, like, slime was just in the culture. And I feel like that Venom black suit, it couldn't have come from any other era in comic books. It could only have come from the 80s. I really dug it. I love the black suit. I, I like when they do all kinds of different revamps of it in different ways, and they throw different things. Nowadays, they even use the stealth suit, so to speak, but they give him a black costume more often than not. And I love how they integrated the black into, like, Miles Morales's costume. I'm a big, big fan of the black costume. I, I felt when the black costume appeared, it was a welcome change because Spider-Man's costume very rarely changed for the... 30 plus years prior to that. And, you know, even Batman's costumes evolved a million times. So it it was a welcome change. What do you think, Adam? Oh, I mean, I have a major affinity for the symbiote costume just from that design standpoint. I mean, it's so stark, just the contrast of the black and white. And I just, from the moment I saw it, I was always just like, man, this is so awesome. And it led me actually to amassing an extensive collection of Venom action figures, which I actually over the years had to pare down and sell off to the earliest 12 figures or so of the black costume Spider-Man, like that uh, Secret Wars figure that Steven brought up. And then uh, all the Venom figures, the early and mid-90s, you mentioned the slime factor, right? The first Venom figure from Toy Biz came with this slime that oozed out of it. And then what was interesting enough is they released a second edition of that same figure, but instead of giving you slime, they gave you this little squirter that you could just fill up with water to make mom happy, right? (laughs) All those years of slime in the 80s she had to deal with, now it's just water, mom. But also one of my favorites is I ended up also with the talking Venom figure, which was a very big deal. So I'm going to play some of his sound bites. I vaguely remember that figure. Wow, that's so funny. And of course you have it. It doesn't surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I have those on my wall. It's just my favorite thing to look at. But also when it comes to my comics collecting, really the only comic books I ever bought that were collectible, you know, things that I spent a fair amount of money on in my early days of collecting in the 90s, they're all related to the black costume. So I have Secret Wars number eight. I have Amazing Spider-Man number 252. Those were just core books that I said, you know what? I gotta have it. Surprisingly enough, I don't have like Amazing Spider-Man 299 or 300 that we're about to get into where Venom really comes into his own. Spider-Man wore the black costume almost exclusively for four years from Amazing Spider-Man 252 until issue 300 when Venom made his first full appearance. During that period, Spider-Man even got a new monthly book called Web of Spider-Man with an amazingly dramatic cover featuring the black costume in issue number one. During this period, though, Spider-Man eventually discovered that the suit was a living symbiote that was attempting to permanently bond himself with Spider-Man. 
This led to him asking Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four for help, and he removed the suit with a sonic blaster, sealing the symbiote in a tube at the Fantastic Four headquarters. But Black Cat, who was dating Spider-Man at the time, made him a cloth version of the suit for him to continue wearing because fans had gotten used to this look. So he would alter between the red and blue and black, depending on the writer and title he was appearing in. Eventually, though, the suit broke out and disguised itself as Spider-Man's cloth costume, trying to complete the bonding process by controlling Peter Parker's body. This is where he went to those infamous church bells to sonically separate from the costume for good, and it seemed to disintegrate. But that was far from the end of the story. Leading up to issue 300 of Amazing Spider-Man, artist Todd McFarlane and David Michelini had Peter Parker pushed in front of a train by an unseen person who didn't trigger his spidey sense. And in issue 299, the assailant revealed himself by appearing in front of Mary Jane in the Parker apartment. Does it surprise you that Marvel stuck with the costume for as long as it did? I feel like for me, like that an almost four year period, that's almost unheard of when you think of characters that get this update. And it's usually for like, you know, a month or two, and it's just kind of like a surprising part of a storyline. And then they go back to the status quo. But the fact that Marvel even changed their corner boxes, they changed the UPC images, like they were all in on Black Spider-Man, which is amazing. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, yeah, what do you think? I, I was com- when I read that, I was completely shocked. I I always thought that the transition from Black Suit Spider-Man to Venom was a lot faster. I must have missed that 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 uh, he was in that black suit for four years. Like for me, I, I was kind of the same way, Stephen. I didn't realize it was that long because in my mind's eye, I could picture the Spider-Man cartoon from the '90s where he was in the black suit for maybe a couple of episodes before. He realized that it was a problem and it was trying to take over. I didn't realize that it was four years. And it started to make me think of like when Hal Jordan was fused with Parallax before Zero Hour and all that stuff. Like he wasn't Parallax for that long other than having the gray sideburns on the side of his hair. Mm -hmm. But for Marvel to stick with the black suit for four years is like unprecedented. And I do remember all the logos and everything had the black face on the thing it was very interesting that now i'm looking back i'm like wow four years is a long time yeah and you know it's interesting because like it was the cloth costume for a lot of that it was just like he did get rid of the symbiote costume fairly quickly but then he was wearing still the same outfit just not the alien version Ah. you just said well it is it's super cool so let's keep using it instead of ditching it and of course that leads to if it's awesome but we don't want him to have that alien costume anymore what could we do with it there's got to be more they mined from it which is what they did like michael was saying they're leading into amazing spider-man number 300 which was in 1988 where Peter hunts down Eddie Brock Venom you know and then he gets his whole origin story because this isn't something we saw you know he's just this mysterious figure this actually happened after Peter thought he had destroyed the symbiote in the bell tower basically Eddie was a reporter who broke the story on a serial killer named Sin Eater but then Spider-Man caught the real killer making Brock a laughing stock he loses his job and he brings him to the point of suicide in a church where his hatred caused Brock to be able to 
bond with the symbiote that also hated Spider-Man, learn all Peter Parker's secrets so they could both get revenge. And so by the end of this battle in 300, they go to those same church tower bells and then basically Spider-Man again is able to get the, the symbiote to leave Eddie Brock for a moment and not, you know, knock him off the top of the tower. So he goes back to Fantastic Four headquarters again, which I just find interesting. Like, they're always like, yep, yeah, send him to the Fantastic Four. We'll hold on to him. But you're doing a bad job, guys. <laughs> he keeps getting out. But he's, but that's actually the case with the vault prison, too, because eventually he goes to the vault, this, you know, supervillain prison, but he keeps getting out of there, too. But after that issue, Peter abandons the cloth black costume out of respect for Mary Jane because now Venom exists and so that freaks her out. Venom keeps coming back though. He's the thorn in Spider-Man's side. A year later Amazing Spider-Man number 315 Venom escapes through the vault he's tormenting Spider-Man again for multiple issues he even goes so far as to like beat up the black cat. He goes to Aunt May's house to like taunt Peter and then they duke it out again and then this time the symbiote actually tries to ditch Eddie and bond with Peter again. I mean it's so absurd obsessed with him (laughs) but overall all of this to me the craziest part like we're talking about how long the suit lasted in the comics but also that venom premiered in the 80s is so incongruous to me because he's so synonymous with the 90s so you know by the time this issue of wizard comes out now venom's been around for four years he's making the cover but during that period like venom he's showing up in the spider-man which is now being drawn by eric larson but he's also guest starring in like an issue of quasar for two pages you know in 1989 he's he's fighting wolverine in marvel comics presents he's playing the big bad in an avengers graphic novel in 1991 called death trap the vault he's fighting Ghost Rider and Darkhawk by 1992. So, I mean, he's just getting around. Venom was everywhere. So, I'm just curious, where do you guys remember seeing Venom back in the day? You mentioned, Michael, the cartoon, but were you guys seeing him in comics that you picked up? Outside of Spider-Man, for me, no. He's always, to me, synonymous as a Spider-Man villain, even though now he's more of an anti-hero, but I've always only really remembered him as being a Spider-Man villain, in particular in that time period. I, I remember him from the comic books. To me, he was like i believe it was a kid in my school who was like obsessed with guns and roses who told me about venom and that's kind of how i think of venom you know he's kind of of the anti-hero for that 80s kid who's transitioning out of comic books and thinks you're a little nerdy for liking comic books <laughs> and venom's different venom's kind of you know this tough guy um you know like lobo and ghost rider like all those kids who thought spider-man was maybe a little square if i remember correctly it was a kid in my school who used to draw guns and roses covers who was like, yo, have you heard about uh, Venom? And I was like, no. Like, who's Venom? Makes me think that, that Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction has to be the official soundtrack of Venom now. You know? Must be. <laughs> well, he's got, he's got that kind of hard rock look to him. And when, like, when I picture his voice, I almost picture like Rob Liefeld's impression of Todd McFarlane's voice. <laughs> You know, like that kind of tough, like, yeah, what you do? we're going we're gonna to start our own company, bro. Like, we're going to start our own thing. <laughs> uh, that, that's like who I hear when I think about Venom. And also, to me, I, I almost feel like there's no image comics if there's no Venom. Hmm. Uh, Spawn and Venom's design are, are pretty similar when you look at those faces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do think that Venom was the start of that. Comic books just aren't just for kids or nerds. Like, they're for they're for cool people, too kind of attitude of the 90s 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because you guys both brought it up that up to this point, he had been a villain, but really, around this period, he starts becoming, yeah, the anti-hero. He's so popular. They're like, well, we got to give him his own book. Can't just be going around murdering people. And so he had this uh, solo backup story, which was my introduction in the 1991 Amazing Spider-Man annual, where he's just at a truck stop, and he stops these criminals. But you see, oh, he has this sense of justice now, and he He's saving the day. And so that's really where he started becoming an anti-hero. And they are setting it up to where Carnage is going to take his place as like the bad symbiote psychopath. And Eddie basically becomes the alien version of the Punisher. And I guess yeah. it makes sense, too, when you think about just the evolution. Because, you know, Eddie Brock wasn't like a career criminal like other members of Spider-Man's rogues gallery. He just had a mental breakdown from that humiliation at the hands of Spider-Man. And the symbiote was kind of feeding into that psychosis with its own hatred but it's like after a few years okay now he's mellowing out so he's working through his demons there but the other part too that i find interesting is just the characterization of venom like what what do you guys think when you imagine like you said you know what does he sound like but what do you think of venom what is your general perception how would you describe how he presents himself to people so the, the thing about the thing that i've always found interesting about venom is not just the venom character but the internal battle between Eddie Brock and the symbiote, like, because, like you said, Eddie Brock's not innately a bad person. He's just, you know, one of those guys that had one bad day. And then, the, and I always like the, the dynamic of, like, he doesn't want to be bad, but he is. And that's kind of why he became the anti-hero. And, like, I kind of picture his voice, you know, I'm always kind of stuck with the way it sounded like on the animated series. But if you think about it now, it almost feels like if you take C- Christian Bale's, like, garbled Batman voice <laughs> and, and, like, added some reverb to it. Okay. I, I agree with that. I, I almost think of, like, Lord of the Rings, Gollum and Smeagol, where one's talking to the other. That That's always how I thought of Venom. Yeah, because, I mean, and he has that whole, like, we thing that it makes him so famous. Yeah. We and us, you know, we parodied that at the top of the show. Uh, but I find it interesting that even in his early introductions, they hadn't ironed that out yet, because he's, like, still Eddie Brock saying, Spider-Man, you did this to me. You know, you ruined my life. And it cut, that also evolves over time. But I find also kind of fascinating that when Eddie Brock is Eddie Brock, he's, like, a very solemn, grim, stoic character. He's not that interesting. But as soon as he lets the costume cover him completely, then he's like a wisecracking weirdo. Like, I assume that came from being bonded with Peter Parker, and the symbiote must have, like, picked that up. Because he's got, like, very, you know, dark humor, and he's always... Like, even the jokes about, like, I want to eat your brains and all that, he rarely actually does that in the comics. In the movie, he did it a lot. But I feel like in the comics, there's a lot less of that. You know, speaking of the movie, one of my favorite storylines that I read back in the day was the Planet of the Symbiotes storyline that ran through all the Spider-Man annuals for a summer there. You know, it's a team up between Spider-Man, Scarlet Spider, and Venom fighting off this invasion. And so, you know, that's what they based a lot of the movie on, because eventually there were a bunch of symbiotes outside of, you know, Carnage and all that, which was to come. But even, like, when they look at the opportunities of where you could take the character, whether or not they were in canon, like, there's a really cool what-if issue, what if Venom had possessed the Punisher... 
because, you know, like I said earlier, in the evolution of the character in the main continuity, he basically became the Punisher. They were very similar to the point where they even teamed up in a mini-series called Funeral Pyre. Yeah, it, it, obviously over over time, the character's been through a lot of ups and downs and evolution, but when you guys think of the legacy of Venom, at least in this period, is there like a real high point? Probably in the cartoon where he's hanging Peter Parker over the building with the mask off. Like, that to me was like the moment that I realized, like, wow, this character is, is serious. Like, he figured out who Spider-Man is. He knows all of his secrets. Like, that, for me, the animated series was my most real connection to, to Venom because it was such a major player for so many episodes. Yeah, I mean, he was very front and center in all the marketing for the animated series. Do you know who did his voice, Michael? No, I don't. I think I used to, but I forgot. Who, it's who, actually, who, it, it is one of the actors from The Simpsons. It's Hank Azaria, who does Moe hmm. and, like, Chief Wiggum and <laughs> all these characters. <laughs> yeah, and so he's the one who does Venom's voice, and I never knew that until recently. Huh. For me, uh, Venom Lethal Protector, that was the one, one with, like, the red foil cover, right? Yeah. That was, like, the big moment when I felt like that character had, like, stepped out from spider-man and become his own thing my little brother really liked venom uh and he bought that issue and he would not let me near it he (laughs) kept it in the bag and board i wasn't allowed to read it i wasn't allowed to breathe on it walk near it he just thought it was like the you know gonna be the biggest comic book since action comics number one so that was a big one and then also maximum carnage the video game yeah. I remember, like, the press for that was, like, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing that commercial or that print ad. That was another big one. Yeah, that red cartridge and everything. Yeah. 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 That was pretty awesome. I, I remember they even, like, repackaged a bunch of the action figures in a Maximum Carnage set that you could get. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so that that was definitely, uh, I think, for Carnage and Venom both. Like, that was their moment in the 90s to just be at the forefront of everything. Because, yeah, because video games were all the rage. Now you're mixing comics and video games. And who knows how many people they brought in after the fact. But I'm sure that's led to the characters enduring popularity so venom man you could say he's just a cool looking character but i think ultimately when he shows up in a book people just have fun and i think most of all for the artists and creatives that get to work with him he's so open for interpretation whether it's visually or you know however you want to take the character you know in a in a different direction he's able to skirt that line like i said kind of the the dark humor but also the violence that any other heroes rarely get not you know they're not going to get away with as easily so yeah man venom endures so we're going to dive right into robin's reading rainbow For Amazing Spider-Man 363, the conclusion of the first Carnage storyline. Art by Mark Bagley. Where does Mark Bagley's Spider-Man fall for you guys in terms of iconic Spider-Man? I do like this style a lot. I always like the big eyes on Spider-Man for some reason. I don't know why. I thought it was kind of cool. It set it apart as opposed to just like the tiny eyes. But I do like the the body movement and and the the way the webbing is drawn on the costume. Yeah, one of my best friends, uh, a guy named Bob Winters, 
he is the biggest Spider-Man fan I know, and he's actually in my my show Hot and Nerdy, and he used his own collection, and so we have these a lot of these covers that I'm looking at are kind of prominently displayed in the show, so that's where I recognize them from. Yeah, it's it's a really cool uh, Spider-Man. Adam, what's your thoughts on it? <laughs> yeah, so for me, Mark Bagley, when I look at him, I realized you know McFarlane has a very iconic Spider-Man, but when I think about it, Mark Bagley. He draws my Spider-Man of my era. I mean, of all the Spider-Man comics in my collection, you know, from the 90s, it's him. And I'm very attached to it, actually. And I know he went on to do Ultimate Spider-Man with Brian Michael Bendis and all that stuff. So, I mean, he has been defining that character for a very long time, even, you know, Maximum Carnage. And he was right there for that. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed also that he drew the Marvel Universe Series 1 trading cards. I never knew that. And in the research for this episode, finding that out was huge for me because you go back and look at him now and you're like oh yeah i can see it so this particular issue you know we were leading up to this in previous episodes talking about how they're t- calling carnage venom spawn and they didn't quite have it all figured out as to who he was yet but in this i mean he is definitely carnage what did you guys think of this story this this wrap-up to basically carnage going on a rampage for the first time i like it a little bit more than I like Venom. Is that blasphemy? Is that is that heresy <laughs> to say? The thing about Carnage and, and, like you said, going on a rampage in the story, he's even more of a wild card, I feel like, than Venom because he's so nuts. I, I really like this issue. This is kind of like my, my sweet spot, this era of comic books. I also thought Carnage was awesome, and I always thought he was cooler than Venom. I really like the action figure that came out for the Spider-Man cartoon of Carnage. That That was like one of my favorite figures. I I thought his design was really, really cool. Uh, And I thought this was like a really fun issue. I I like any time that the good guys and the bad guys have to team up to face someone who's worse than than Mm -hmm. the regular bad guy. So I like kind of the banter between Venom and Spider-Man. And uh, as someone whose uh, favorite book is Fantastic Four, it was great to see Mr. Fantastic and Human Torch appear in this one. So it's it's a really good issue. Whenever Spider-Man needs some sort of sonic blaster, he's like, he calls him in. I think even in the Maximum Carnage video game, don't they come in? I, somebody has a sonic blaster as like a special move they call it or something like that. I think, I think you're right on that one. But yeah, anytime Mr. Fantastic pops up, I'm always excited, so. Yeah, well, what's interesting, too, is like where Venom had been prior to this little three-issue arc, he and Spider-Man had been having these battles. They eventually had a battle on a deserted island, and then Spider-Man faked Venom out, made him think he was dead, and then Venom stayed on the island, and there's two issues of Darkhawk, Darkhawk 13 and 14, where Darkhawk fights Venom on this island, and then eventually Eventually, Spider-Man goes back and says, Carnage is here. I need your help and brings him. And he's like, you're alive. You know, he's like, we hate you, but we'll go with you. But the characterization of Venom in this is so weird. Like in the opening shot of them swinging through the city, he's singing Strangers in the Night. (laughs) Like, what are you doing, Venom? Like, when did you become a goofball? Like, I thought you were a psychotic killer, not just a psycho weirdo. But it's weird, too, because... They don't keep the we and us thing consistent because there's a point at which, you know, they're like, wait, you're teamed up with Spider-Man? And Venom's like, I know, I find the concept as loathsome as you do, but don't worry, it won't be forever. It's an inconsistency that I was like, they still hadn't decided, you know, when does he say we, when does he say us? But for me, the funnest 
the funnest, that's not a word. The most fun <laughs> concept of the issue was that when they go to track down Carnage, he is at a rock concert. So he's at a heavy metal concert called Headbanger of Heaven with a band called No Fate on stage. It kind of, you know, looks like your standard, you know, Axl Rose, you know, Poison. I find it hilarious because when he gets on stage, like he's killing people, like security guards, and people are like, whoa, wicked stage show! You know, they're so excited. And he's like, hey kids, I'm Carnage! I kill people! And it just made me think of, we were talking about Guar a few episodes back. A lot of fun it was standard for the time without being over the top and ridiculous like it was well plotted action it was well drawn you know what's going on you could make it all out like mark bagley's art is fantastic and you know it just it wraps up nicely to the point where venom's basically like because spider-man's like well i can't let venom go after this you know like yes i asked him to help me but i can't just say okay now you're free and so what does he do he makes sure that uh, like you mentioned steven fantastic (laughs) four shows up to knock him out with sonics and and then he's ready to go and even like spider-man himself tries cranking up the sound system to do feedback to get carnage and ven on her costumes all out of whack so lots of creative stuff there but yeah so overall i think a very solid issue of spider-man for anybody and it felt like it was easy enough if you were just jumping in because the cover looked cool you wouldn't be totally lost completely yeah and the cover is very cool it's just their three heads but it's dynamic yeah 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 it is kind of cool. Yeah, the red, the red and green is a is a very off-putting but interesting juxtaposition, like Freddy Krueger's sweater. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of Venom, we will dig into Punisher's price guide. So, Punisher's Price Guide for Amazing Spider-Man 298, the first appearance of Eddie Brock and the first McFarlane work on Spider-Man, was priced at $23 in May of 92. A non-graded copy now sells between $30 and $70 within the same month. This particular issue is very up and down, but... Because it generally falls on the upswing above what it was in 92, we're going to give this guy the classification of a Firestar. Yeah, so this is like first appearance of Eddie Brock, but like really not, you know, a full Venom appearance. That doesn't really happen until 299 and 300. But the main thing for this time period is that it was the first McFarlane on Spider-Man. And the cover is actually pretty lame. I mean, it's not, it's a character like nobody knows and cares about as the main villain in the issue. And so, yeah, it's, if you looked at it, you would say, oh, is that the first Venom? No, you, you wouldn't have any indication. Um, but yeah, I, I just, when I was looking at those prices, I was very surprised that, yeah, it's like, okay, it's selling for 30 bucks here, now it's selling for 45 a day later it's selling for 70 and it didn't seem to be much of a difference between, you know, the copies, it wasn't like, oh, this UPC or whatever, so it just sounds like, you know, somebody really loves McFarlane or somebody really loves Spider-Man or somebody really loves Venom, wherever they fall, you know, you can catch them and they'll pay a little bit more that day. Speaking of Todd... Let's get into Rob and Todd's Hype Machine. Hype 
what's really interesting here is that in the Wizard News section, it mentions that Rob Liefeld has been removed from X-Force by Marvel, so he will not be handling the Cable miniseries he promised. There was a previous article where he's like, oh yeah, you know, I, I want to give everybody the real origin, you know, I created that character, but he didn't get to do that. Because they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't work for us anymore, Rob. You are the competition now. I, I think it's really interesting in that respect, because uh, again, we talked about Will Sportacio. He's still doing Punisher. He's still doing X-Men. He's still, you know, working over at Marvel. And I think he was trying to straddle the line and not rock the boat. Whereas the rest of them were like, nope, we are out. We are done. This is our thing now. Although in that article, that image article we read earlier, like Jim Lee was kind of like, well, I got nothing against Marvel. And then McFarlane comes out. He's like, well, I'll just say it. I'm done. And he held <laughs> to his guns. I mean, Todd never went back. So in this issue, then, as we go through here, Rob got a whopping 12 mentions, while Todd ended up with 7. Uh, so that gives our running total. Rob is at 47 mentions, and Todd is at 31. So Todd is playing catch-up here, but Spawn is just around the corner. So we shall see. So how many years do you think it's going to take till we get to zero mentions for Rob? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, you are not wrong. I think there is going to be a day where we'll be like, oh, wait, wait who? Todd who? Rob who? It seemed like a, a, a spectacular fall, because I remember, like, Rob being the hot young artist here in these early issues. And then as soon as I picked up that Wizard magazine with Captain America with the man boobs from Heroes Reborn, that's when I was like, oh, God, this guy's done. So Yeah, that was the drop-off. <laughs> it was... It was a spectacular uh, finale for Ugh. in my mind in my memory so i guess we'll see how that goes yeah for for better or worse <laughs> speaking of worse i think it's time we take a look at guy gardner's gimmicks a go go how bizarre how bizarre how bizarre Oh boy, here we go. We have Jim Sutton from Kingman, Arizona, which is just a few hours south of me here. He says, Dear Wiz, I'm a 22-year-old collector who began collecting comics when I was eight. I've seen a lot of gimmicks over the years, but this one takes the cake. I recently purchased the Lobo slipcase package and was greatly disappointed when I opened it. Inside was Lobo's greatest hits, a compilation of some of Lobo's guest appearances, the last Zarnian story, eight postcards, and the Wisdom of Lobo book. When I opened the Wisdom book, I found 50 blank pages, much to my chagrin. There was nothing in it at all, just blank paper. Needless to say, I was and still am very mad. I returned to the store I purchased it from and asked for my money back. My friend Sean, who owns the store, didn't believe me when I told him. He said he heard about a practical joke DC was playing on Lobo fans. But this is too much! Just because DC lost the big summer comic wars, not an excuse for such shoddy treatment of the comic-buying public, with 14 covers on Robin 2, and now this... It appears as if DC is jumping hip-deep into the hype pool to recoup its losses from this summer. I was told by Sean that I could purchase the last Zarnian graphic novel for $9 and Greatest Hits for the same price. Slipcase costs $29.95. This means I paid probably $2.95 for the postcards and $9 for a pad of paper in the guise of a book. Lobo fans, beware. Take that $30 and purchase some good comic books. You'll be much happier. A word to DC. Many other collectors I've talked to are very dissatisfied. I am considering to cease purchasing DC Comics due to this fraud. I would like to hear other fans' opinions on this matter. Thank you for providing this arena to vent my frustrations. So before I read 
Wizard's response to this. I can understand why when Twitter had its inception that they limited it to 140 characters. <laughs> Because this was one of the most long-winded things I've ever seen. And I want to ask this guy, Jim, was Sean from the comic book store really your friend? Was he really? I don't know. But holy moly, this guy really went after it. So a wizard's response to this novella, I'm going to call it. (laughs) A sales gimmick is a means to get people interested in your book enough to buy it or to hype it up in a way that you'll buy more than one. Multiple covers or special holograms could do that. However, selling a book that has no pages in it does not do that. It was not a gimmick. It could only have been a joke then. What wasn't funny is that it was unannounced and people expected a 50-page Lobo story. The result of this joke was not humor, but anger towards DC for what seems like too many fans, including Jim here, a ripoff. Please, DC Comics, think before you do things. So, Wizard, they're on the side of the consumer here. DC, you messed up. We're not playing that game Lobo style. <laughs> if, if you look at the first nine issues of Wizard Magazine, I think, what, seven of them have been Marvel covers to begin with? So, I, I think they're on the side of Marvel anyway. Regardless. <laughs> They're not worried about what DC has to say at this not, point. Not at all. I'm very curious to see if there is official release from DC apologizing in a future issue. You never know. That would be interesting. All right. Well, now we're ready to open up Asriel's action figure fury. Okay, in Brian Cunningham's column, Toying Around, he is talking to us about female action figures. Uh, At least in the toy industry, traditionally we've heard, boys don't buy toys of girls. And therefore, they make fewer female action figures as a result. Uh, And so Brian is addressing that in saying that he feels that there is actually, you know, a market out there. I mean, in his specific case, he's mentioning Psylocke. He really wants a Psylocke figure, but maybe not for, you know, the reasons of, oh, it's my favorite character. But it's interesting that he says here, from a personal standpoint, psychologists could have a field day with this one, female figures were the first to die die in my little fantasies they were good for that one smooch with han solo or batman and then they bought it wonder woman princess leia batgirl you name them and they died in the most interesting ways remember the small migo playset with the exploding bridge <laughs> i was like oh dear <laughs> like brian what what is this strange fantasy you have here so i thought that we could try to maybe salvage this a little bit because <laughs> there's something to be said in, in the years that have come that there were many many more female action figures produced, but, you know, obviously still at a much lower quantity than male figures and male heroes. What is your guys' general thought about the female action figure? Was that a regular part of your collecting? I'm going to start off with this statement, and this this comes from me doing my research, looking back into the history. And the one thing I noticed about a lot of female action figures is... They have lifeless eyes like a doll's eyes. I know. I'm like, wow, they really can't make female action figures' eyes or faces look very good. 
I do have a few that I really do like, and I have uh, a list. But you know, back in the '90s and '80s, the only female action figures that I had the Toy Biz Wonder Woman, and I had Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman. Which I have to point out, I've been saving this to, to announce this. My my dear friend Adam sent me a package during this wild ride we're having in in this country right now. And in that package was a sealed inbox, brand new Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman. My daughter wanted to play with it. I jacked it out of her hands and ran it up <laughs> in my little man cave where I store my collectibles. And it's like it's like on a pedestal, sitting there overseeing everything else and like no one touch. I haven't even taken the, the plastic bag that you sent it to me in. It's still in it. I didn't even take it out of that yet. <laughs> Keep it protected. Keep her uh, safe. Oh, forever. All right. How about you, Steven? Well, you, you know, I always found that they that you would see them on the back of the box, and you would never find them in stores. They were the, the hardest figures to find always were, were, like, the female figures in any male or boy action figure line. Like, the the first ones I remember were the She-Ra toys. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which were only because they were a separate line from He-Man. They were trying to market He-Man to girls. So that was... Probably the first female action figure that I owned was She-Ra. Oh, see, and I had Evil Lynn from oh, yes. the Masters of the Universe line. So that I know a lot of people had that, too. Um, but, yeah, you're right. It, they were super hard to find. Like, I remember my hunt for the Rogue figure. I never <laughs> found Rogue at Target or Toys R Us. I had to go to a comic book shop and pay, like, 15 bucks, you know, as a major markup to get my Rogue figure back in the day. And speaking of which, I was doing a little research. They took that body style toy biz over the years and they went crazy repainting that yeah. thing mm-hmm. they turned her into mystique they turned her into polaris polaris yes yes i i remember the polaris figure yeah it was the same exact body style 100 percent. yeah it was really weird but anyway yeah so i i always had an interest in finding the figures but they were difficult and so i thought it would be fun for us now to say in the years that have followed what are our top three female action figures let's give them the spotlight Let's celebrate them here. So, uh, Michael, I know you said you had a list. Because actually the the three that are my favorite, other than the Catwoman, which I already mentioned, and in no particular order. Adam knows that I'm a huge Elseworlds fan, and uh, my number three is the Thrill Killer Batgirl action figure oh, from 2005. Awesome. That, that was a, I'm a huge, huge fan of that one. I love that one. I remember seeing that in comic stores. I don't know why I didn't buy it, because I bought both of the Thrill Killer series. I love those so much. Yeah, me too. The second one is another Elseworlds story in Supergirl Elseworlds Finest, where Supergirl actually has short hair, the, and she's got a full costume, kind of like how Melissa Benoist has her costume now on TV. There's no skirt or anything. And it was like the first time I had ever seen that, where she didn't have the, the skirt and boots look. And I, I really like that figure. I have that in one of my display cases. But my number one, aside from the Catwoman, is also a DC figure. This is probably one of the best figures I've ever seen to to date the all-star Superman Lois Lane when she had the superhero costume. Do you guys know oh, that? Oh, cool. Yeah, I just watched the animated version of that recently for the first time. So, yeah, that's great. So those are my, my top three of all, of all time. If I had to go 80s and 90s, it would be the Toy Biz Wonder Woman, the Catwoman I mentioned, 
And here's one you wouldn't have guessed, Adam. Marvel Fantastic Four Medusa from 1996. Oh, wow. That's great. How about you, Steven? Well, just looking at this issue, there's like this prototype of Invisible Woman, and that figure looks nothing like that. And that that was such a bummer. And like they talk about how this figure would have disappeared in water and all this kind of stuff. And instead, we just got an invisible platform, right? Yeah, yeah, and with like a tiny like little head. But anyway, so my top three, another toy that I chased down, and I had almost every figure in this line, was uh, the Thundercats Chitara, where I had, like, I was obsessed with Thundercats, couldn't find Chitara anywhere, and then one day, we went to Toys R Us to buy a birthday gift for my cousin, and my dad found Chitara and bought it for my cousin. And so, like, every (laughs) time I went to his house... I was, like, coveting this Chitara figure. And the other thing was, like, um, Tigra came with either Kit or Cat, and Chitara right. came with the other one. And so you never had the twins either. You needed Chitara to complete the twin set. So that was <laughs> one of those toys. Now, my number two is the Batman Returns Catwoman. Just as a huge Batman fan, to with the Toy Biz line, you, you finally got Riddler. So with the superpowers, the Joker and Penguin, you just needed, like, that fourth you know, great Batman villain. And I thought that figure was fantastic. I thought the whipping action was like one of the coolest actions in, in a toy that, that I ever uh, had at that point. But my number one is another one that was elusive. And I had every single toy in this line. I was obsessed with this movie. And I hunted down this figure at every Child World, Toys R Us. I never found it. It was the blank from Dick Tracy. Oh, and I'd, yes. I'd only heard, like, you know, you would hear rumors when you were a kid. Oh, my cousin has it. It's like, well, show me, like, take me Prove to your cousin's house. I want to see it. <laughs> oh, no, I can't. But someone did tell me, oh, well, when you take off the mask, it has Madonna's face underneath. And I was like, eh, I don't know if that's true. And sure enough, I found out years later that was the case. <laughs> and I don't know how this person in my Long Island Elementary School knew that fact. But, yeah, it, like just just like the legend that surrounds it for me and the fact that I never had it made it my favorite female action figure. So, Steven, real quick, if you're desperately looking for the blank action figure, mm-hmm. I, I, which I, I am, I found it on eBay for a mere $1,499.99 and $8.70 shipping from a guy in Pennsylvania. If, okay. you're, if you're interested. <laughs> well, you know, if I get the stimulus check, it is kind of putting it back into the economy. There you go. I think, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm helping a guy in Pennsylvania. What's wrong with that? I'll, I'll try to convince my wife of that one, and let's see yeah. how that goes. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be driving to Pennsylvania. I may not be coming back. <laughs> Uh, and Steven, I've got to tell you, I recently came into possession of Chitara. Oh, wow. On my web series, we had a Thundercats episode, and as part of that, we just ended up buying everybody. I now have everybody except Wiley Kit. Oh, okay. For as far as mine go, so my first one here, th- this falls into an interesting area in that she had comics produced about her eventually, but she didn't start in comic books, but that is Xena Warrior Princess by Toy Biz. Lucy Lawless was a huge Judy 
junior high school crush for me. <laughs> my buddy had it, and I was so jealous. And so I never got Zena, but I was just like, the fact that she existed in action figure form, I was so excited. Maybe in the same vein, but just I was so excited that it actually existed, was the Fairchild from Gen 13, 1998 figure. I mean, because Ghibli had the great line of Wildcats figures by, by Playmates, but then they made these Gen 13 action figures, but they only made Fairchild, and then eventually they made these dolls that they did Lynch, and they did Burnout, but they never made Grunger Freefall, so you could never have the whole team. That was very frustrating, but at the same time, the Fairchild figure just looked so perfect. I was just like, okay, well, I'm happy. And then my last one, going along with uh, my Venom Black Costume Spider-Man action figure collection, is the Marvel Legends Julia Carpenter Spider-Woman variant. So that's the Spider-Woman, you know, with the black and white costume. But Julia Carpenter, her costume, she was in the Secret Wars with Spider-Man. And that was a costume that was being developed around the same time as the black costume and all of that. So anyway, I have that figure. It's just so poseable. It's well-sculpted. It looks awesome. So one of the few Marvel Legends female figures, I think, that they did a good job with. Yeah, there's so many more out there. So we definitely want you guys to share your favorite female superhero action figures with us, or just of all time, in any line. I, I want to tell you listeners out there, there is so much in this issue that I am going to record a special bonus episode that's going to come out here, because there is a whole report on Toy Fair 92, as well as a letter that came in from a, the guy who sculpted the Toy Biz Marvel superheroes figures. And there's just a whole story to be told there we don't have time for in this episode. Episode, so look for that. But I think it's time we wrap up this whole shebang with Riddle Me This. So it's time that we quiz our guest and we test their knowledge. Now, I know you have the magazine with you, Stephen. I don't know if you studied this ahead of time, if you kept yourself uh, free from the knowledge of what was to come. But Once I saw your note, I stayed pure. Okay, thank you. We applaud your morality. I was, I was raised on comic books. I have to have morality. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be a Venom and Lobo fan. Oh, touche. All right, sorry. Okay, so here we go. We are going to quiz you here for the opportunity to win an autograph set of The Amazing Spider-Man number 346 and 347 autographed by Eric Larson with a wizard seal of authenticity. So first of all, getting back to Valiant Comics, Valiant's Robot Fighter. Would that be Exo Manowar? We'll try again. Can you oh, remember any geez. other Valiant titles that weren't Solar? Uh, uh, <laughs> that weren't Solar. Exo Manowar. And I, I will say the literal title is Blank Robot Fighter. Oh, jeez. Yeah, this one's uh, has left I, my brain. I don't know this one either. I was like, six characters? I don't know. Couldn't the tell. answer is... Magnus Robot Fighter. (laughs) He does not have any magnetic powers, however, sorry to say. Okay, you're sure to get this one, though. Number two, Warren Worthington III. Uh, Angel or Archangel. Yeah, in this case, they were looking for Archangel because that was his current incarnation, so very good. This one, I think, I mean, this could go so many ways, uh, but I think it's only one just based on the number of spaces, which there are five spots here so bruce dot 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 wayne 
Yeah, yeah. it's gotta be. No, no banner is gonna yeah. fit in there. So, all right, next one. Tony Stark is Iron Man. Yeah. yeah, that one's too easy. <laughs> but back then, not as many people knew Iron Man. Yeah, just just as a drunk. Well, why would they start off with Valiant's robot fighter, and then they go to Bruce Wayne and <laughs> Iron Man? Like, really? Okay. Oh, but that's it. They, they gotta toss you some softballs, make you get your confidence up. Now, here's another one: the leader of X Force. The leader of X Force at that time. Ah, uh, would it have been Cable? Yeah, yes, okay. correct. Okay, this one is just ridiculous. He's on our cover. Uh, the wizard's cloak. No, Venom. <laughs> yes. Okay, and here's one. Batman, comma, the world's greatest blank. Detective. Very nice. Adam West would be proud. Okay, and uh, next is Warlock and the Infinity what? Gauntlet. Or is it is it less letters? It's it's the name of Warlock's title at the time, and oh. he had a team, and they were called the Infinity. Oh, I, I I'm not sure. You might have one on your wrist. Watch. Yeah. Infinity watch. <laughs> Warlock yeah. and the Infinity watch. Yes. That one got by me. Yeah. So many choices there. Infinity this, Infinity that, <laughs> and finally to wrap it up here we have. Blank and Iron Fist. Oh, Power Man and Iron Fist. Very nice. Ding, ding, I've got ding, that ding. first issue on my wall in my, in my uh, little office. Yeah, I'm sorry, though. You're going to have to settle for third prize, a limited edition San Diego Comic-Con version of Wizard Number 1. Mm, okay. Thanks for playing. <laughs> Uh, but seriously, Steven, this was a blast. We enjoyed having you on here. We have so much more we could talk to you about, so we're going to have to have you back on another time. Yeah, that'd be my pleasure, guys. Like, truly, I'm, I'm so honored to be a part of this. I love your podcast. Thank you for listening and being a part of the Wizards universe. And for the rest of you out there, yes, we will be coming back soon. Not too long now. We'll have a bonus episode, and then we'll have our Wizards episode 10. Issue 10 of Wizard is a bombshell, okay? The cover, there's a whole story behind this. I mean, this is this is a big one, guys. This is what saved the publication, and we'll tell you all about it. So you will want to be back here for that. Make sure you're following us on social media, and make sure you are sharing it with your friends so they can enjoy it too. Tell them about the Retro Network. So much more fun to come. So until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.